We have more to do on this uh, fairly distasteful, I admit to you, fairly distasteful series on holy ideas about holy matrimony. We've covered uh, unattractive subjects, um, variations on the theme of sanctified holy matrimony. We've spoken about uh, sexual relations outside of marriage, and we've spoken about same-gender relationships, and, uh, uh, and we've spoken about temporary marriage, marriages that, that, that don't last. And uh, uh, the good news is next week will be, our, Lord willing, our last week on this subject, and then we'll move on. And we'll end on a very positive note next week. What's the big idea of marriage? Uh, the big idea is not companionship, and the big idea is not procreation. No, no, the big idea is to reflect the weddedness of the Lord Jesus Christ to those of us. And I want to show you next week how what the Lord has done in giving us the new covenant. Uh, by the way, Moran, in Hebrew, that is the Brit Hadashah. I just want you to be able to understand. We're, we're, we are culturally relevant here, y'all. And so... Um, uh, I would like you to see how the, the new covenant is uh, the Lord's, uh, we call it a ketubah, the, the, the wedding contract with us, his, his church. There's nothing in the Gospels in the New Testament that the Lord left arbitrarily and for chance. I'd like you to see that everything he did conforms to traditional Jewish marriage, and it's a foreshadowing of the consummation of our weddedness with the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we'll end at a, on a good positive note next week tonight. Uh, not so positive, but, uh, but a harsh reality we have to deal with. Uh, we'll call this marriage mismatch. Um, what do we mean by marriage mismatch? Well, some would say uh, that's when there's an interracial marriage. Uh, uh, you may feel that way, but that is not the teaching of the Bible. Uh, interracial marriage between loving people, that is not a marriage mismatch. Some say it has to do with temperament differences or personality differences or this thing that seems to be the basis of, of a, a lot of marriage dissolution today, irreconcilable differences, whatever that is. Irreconcilable differences seems to be a legitimate grounds upon which many are pursuing divorce today. But we're not talking about that when we talk about marriage mismatch. We're talking about spiritual incompatibility, a uh, discordant bond between people who are spiritually situated differently. Um, in other words, in order for a marital partnership to realize and reveal the fullness of God's plan for marriage and the fullness of his blessing, it must consist um, of a believer married to a fellow believer. And if we modify that theme, that is really the ultimate marital mismatch, that spiritual incompatibility. Now, there was a fellow named Solomon, very wise, you know. He asked for it, and God gave it to him. Sadly, he didn't always act on the wisdom he had, but at least he had wisdom. And this very wise man said something I, I think you're familiar with in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. He said, two are better than one uh, because they have a good return for their labor. And if either of the two falls, then the one will lift up his companion. And not only that, woe to the one who falls when there isn't another to lift him up. See, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And then it says, a cord 
of three strands is not quickly torn apart. The first three verses of that passage um, uh, could be a characteristic of any good marriage, companionship and provision and protection and co-laboring. But this last phrase, in the last verse, uh, uh, verse 12 of Ecclesiastes 4, this one that speaks of a cord of three strands, now that's an entirely different twist. Uh, a cord of three strands, that kind of bond, that is only true of marriages that have the third strand, which leads to this question, what is the third strand? If one is the husband and the second strand is the wife, I'll bet you'll agree with me in suggesting the third strand is the maker of human life and the author of marriage, uh, the Lord himself. It's a cord of three strands that cannot be broken. We all know that in the context of normal marriage, sometimes there could be a fraying of the partners. One or the other can fray. But if it's a marital partnership consisting of three strands, even if the husband and wife become a little frayed and even a little apart and even drift because they run into things they, they find too difficult to deal with, if it consists, if it's characterized by this third cord, uh, the Lord Jesus can hold it together. And you cannot have that in a spiritual marital mismatch. God knows this, you see. And so he warned uh, our ancient people, the Israelites, against this kind of marital mismatch. He did this in what we call Torah, uh, specifically Deuteronomy. Moses is the recorder of this. And in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and on, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land uh, where you are entering to possess it. And when he clears away many nations before you, by the way, at the risk of getting political, today people say um, the Jews in the land are occupying the land. It belonged to another. Well, but I'm going way back to Deuteronomy. When you are entering this land to possess it, and God clears away the nations before you. Now, if you object to that divine initiative, your argument is with God, and he will win, you see. You're going to lose that argument. But when you do that, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, you know about all these ites, it goes on and on. When you enter, God will clear them all out, and you shall make no covenant with them. And then it says in uh, verse 3 of Deuteronomy 7, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. That's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It had the forcefulness of a divine mandate, God giving it to Moses to give to the ancient Israelites. You're going to be tempted to enter into partnership with the people in the land, do not do so. It would be a marital mismatch. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. But you may be thinking, that's Old Testament. We call it the Tanakh. Uh, many here uh, know it more 
in a more familiar way, the Old Testament. You might be saying there's much in the Old Testament that does not apply today. So maybe Deuteronomy 7 is one of those obscure passages, this prohibition on marrying um, someone spiritually discordant. That's an Old Testament thing. No, it's not. It's repeated in both Testaments. In the New Testament, is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. It says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. That is exactly the same thing God said way back in Deuteronomy 7. So we know that those things in the Old Testament, which are repeated in the New Testament, are for every day. It applies today. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. You might have a translation that says, do not be unequally yoked. Do you have that one? That's a good one. Do not be unequally yoked. Here's the, it's a metaphor from the world of agriculture where a farmer would take two animals and put them under the same yoke. Why? The labors of two are better than one. The design, the two animals being yoked together is that they would pull together. They're in the yoke together, they pull together, and as a result, together, they can be much more productive. It comes from the agricultural world of ancient Israel and is a reality even, even today. The labors of two are better than one, but there's a potential glitch in this uh, fine arrangement. If you yoke together two animals that are sufficiently different one from the other, you do not have productivity when they pull because they're not pulling together. You have disaster. And that's why God, who knows all things, gave this directive in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Did you know that's in the Bible? You do not want to put these two animals in the same yoke. That is a no-no. And all you got to do is read Deuteronomy 22.10. And you can find out that God warned us about this. You don't want to put a yoke around a donkey and an ox. Why? The ox is bigger. The ox is stronger. The ox is faster. So what's happening is both animals, not only are they not being productive, they're paining one another. They have conflict and dispute. Imagine it. The ox is pulling. The donkey is resisting. And that is a very, very poor and ineffective partnership. And I'll tell you something else that you might find a little unusual. Uh, these two animals are different spiritually. The Old Testament has laws designating what is a clean animal and what is an unclean animal. And in the Old Testament, you could ask God about this someday. I'm just telling you what he wrote. In the Old Testament, God said an ox is declared to be a clean animal, but a donkey is an unclean animal. And then God gave strict guidance to Israel. You must not confuse that which is clean with that which is unclean. It's a mismatch. Don't do it. Now the Apostle Paul, himself Jewish, understands all this, and so he's taking this agricultural common sense principle, and he's applying it to human relationships in the text in Corinthians. And so he applies this to human partnerships and says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You see? You see how clear and how serious it is? 
Don't be unequally. Don't be in a partnership with somebody with whom you are mismatched spiritually. Now, this principle, though not limited to marital partnerships, certainly applies to it. And why does God say something such as this? Well, the next phrase in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 says, For what partnership? have righteousness and lawlessness. Is this insinuating that a Christian is a better person than one who is not a Christian? No, it's not saying that at all. It's simply saying that the believer has a much better way. The believer is considered righteous in God's eyes, meaning he has right standing because of the merits of Messiah Jesus. But that's not true of the unbeliever. They're in two different ways spiritual orbs. One is mastered by the master. The other is mastered by sin. And the incompatibility between a believer and an unbeliever is uh, to the same extent as the difference between righteousness and lawlessness. Now, you may have had friends, I have, uh, who are in a dating relationship, one being a believer and one not. And the believer seems, with every ounce of his or her energy, uh, seems to want to persuade you, the caring Christian friend, of the compatibility of their relationship. Why, he can finish my sentence even before I complete it. We just think the same way we like the same foods. Do you know our favorite color is orange? We have all this. So the believer oftentimes, because of emotional involvement, which wages war against objectivity, usually tries to justify the discordant bond by uh, defending compatibility. But I just want you to see that the Apostle Paul, an inspired biblical writer, is actually arguing the opposite. He's arguing in the direction of the incompatibility of a believer dating and then marrying an unbeliever, while the believer oftentimes is arguing the other way. I don't want to be harsh. I'm a human also. Folks, feelings, emotions are magnificent. They are God-given but we have to gain mastery over them. They're wonderful slaves. They're horrible masters. It has to be the fact-based word of God that gives us our guidance for living. I showed you something in Deuteronomy. I showed you the parallel passage here in 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. Make no mistake about it. Dating relationships, romantic bonds, marital bonds between believer and non-believer is prohibited in the Bible, both testaments. It is an unholy twist, unholy matrimony. And so Paul is speaking about how compatible the believer and the non-believer aren't. And to further emphasize the incompatibility, he asks, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Very practical argument from the natural world. Light is the opposite of darkness. And in the same fashion, uh, Paul demonstrates in the spiritual realm, a believer has nothing in common 
with a non-believer. And Paul goes on in verse 15 to say, what harmony has Christ with Belial? See the word harmony? Uh, here is the word in Greek, symphonesis. Does it look or sound familiar? Yes, yeah, symphony. Uh, that's the word from which we get our word symphony. Y you know what's in view here? Um, a Christian and a non-Christian cannot make sweet, harmonious, spiritual music together. In fact, in that kind of marital mismatch, you have the same discordant sound-making that you would find in a, an orchestra out of tune, out of sync with one another. It can't be holy harmony it isn't a symphony of lives enmeshed for the glory of God. Uh, they're in different domains. It's light versus darkness. And to highlight this idea of disharmony, uh, this is the contrast Paul makes. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial was a name used for Satan. And so in a very striking way, Paul is saying what do Savior and Satan have in common? And now he makes the application, and what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? That's what the text says. Spiritually speaking, the answer is nothing, nothing at all. And to further highlight the discord, Paul asks in verse 16, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The temple built in Jerusalem was the place in which God said, I will establish my presence. You will meet with me here, and I will meet with you. It was a magnificent structure, and people would go up to Jerusalem so as to meet with the very real presence of Almighty God there. And now as we get to the new covenant, you and I know Oh, my heavens, that's a foreshadowing of the ultimate spiritual reality. We are the temple, the housing of God's Ruach HaKodesh, his spirit. Which one? HaKodesh, the Holy One. And so the text says, we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I'll dwell in them. I'll walk among them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And Paul is saying... <laughs> What agreement has the temple of God with the place of idol worship? He is saying, what agreement has the temple, the Christian uh, who is housing the very spirit of God, what in common does that one have with the one who is not possessed by the Holy Spirit of God at all? And, and so the answer to these series of questions is given in verse 17, therefore, come out from their midst and separate. It's a quotation from Isaiah. Israel was in bondage in Babylon. She is mercifully set free. She's on her way to her place of promise, the Holy Land. Before she went, God said to her through Isaiah, Come out from the Babylonians. They enslaved you. They worship a multiplicity of false gods. I am your God. I deliver you. I'm redeeming you by grace and by mercy. You don't deserve it. I do it by grace and by mercy. But you must come out 
from the midst of those who don't know me and you must be separate. So the principle for ancient Israel is exactly the same as it is for us today who are believers. The principle is one of separation. I did not say isolation. These wonderful people we just prayed over, oh my heavens, they're going to be in the midst of those who need to know of the Lord Jesus. But separation is an entirely different thing. Look, we have the distinct privilege as believers as belonging to Almighty God. Think about it. Wrestle over your identity no more. I'll tell you who you is. You're a son or daughter of God if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's who you are. What a great privilege, but it brings with it a great responsibility. And the responsibility is one of separating ourselves from absolutely anyone dating partner, anyone who will, in a subtle way, pull us away from the one who's willing to be wedded to us. So, folks, I have a harsh word here. If you are presently in a dating relationship, you're a Christian, and you're presently in a dating relationship with someone who is not, on the basis of God's word, you must immediately break it off you must immediately break it off. Do you know how hard that's going to be? Not nearly as hard as what will ensue after you say, I do. And I don't want to be unduly harsh, but God is not requiring us of us something beyond our ability to deal with it. And if you're honest, please, please be honest. You shouldn't have gotten yourself that far into it. That's why extricating yourself from it is now so difficult. There's an emotional tie, maybe even physical. Although I'm sympathetic, uh, we, we can't compromise. You can't lead with your heart. It's going to get you in, it's already gotten you in, in a jam. Do not be unequally yoked. You're not pulling together. It isn't, it isn't possible. But what if you're in this? mismatched relationship and you're in it, you, the Christian, uh, to win your partner to the Lord. If I hear this one more time, I'm going to poke my eyes out with a spoon or a fork or something. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Do you realize there's no guarantee you will ever succeed? Do you know that? Not only that, I don't want to be harsh, but I know this is harsh. Do you know you're doing the opposite of what you say you want? You want to be a bridge to your unsaved partner to know the Lord, but you're actually making it more difficult because you're devaluing your commitment to your heavenly husband in compromising on what your heavenly husband said to you as his bride. Why should your unsaved boyfriend or girlfriend desire devotion and loyalty to the God whose standards you pick and choose, you have watered down. Don't you see you're speaking through both, out of both sides of your mouth? It's very, very, in, you're giving an inconsistent, you're invalidating your message in the choices you have made. I've made this point, the reason the world out there is embracing all these manifold unholy ideas is of holy matrimony is that we who claim to have a better way are not showing it 
because we are doing the same array of human sinful alternatives that they are out there. You're invalidating the message of weddedness by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ in committing spiritual adultery, in turning your back on he, your beloved, who loves you and doesn't want to share you. If you really love this one whom you're dating, look that one later tonight in the eye and say, please forgive me. I led with my heart, and I caused you to stumble, but I need you to know, as much as I do love you, the one who loves me more than you ever could wants all of me, and he has it from this night forward. Then maybe your unsaved partner will take seriously your claims of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. But what if you're already married to a non-believer? Should you divorce that one? No, no a thousand times no. What then should you do? You should live out the Christ life in the presence of your unsaved spouse, praying all the while that your father would so reveal his presence in your life to your spouse that your spouse takes note and wants to know more of the God in you. Listen, this idea, married to an unbeliever, shouldn't we divorce, was one first century Christians actually broached. And Paul answers it in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12. If any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. There you have it. And verse 14, listen to this. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What does this mean? I don't know. <laughs> I just believe what it says. I don't know. Somehow, the influence of a believing spouse, even though unequally yoked, Somehow there's a setting apart, a sanctification of the household. Somehow God's spirit in you is permeating your home, eh, permeating your home. And if there's any hope for your unsaved spouse and children to be under the influence of Almighty God, don't bail out. You're there. And God who inhabits you can work through you as a fragrant aroma breathed in by unsaved husband or wife. Breathe in by children otherwise on the run from, uh, from Almighty. So there's a sanctive, a kind of a setting apart, a privileged setting apart because you could give them more opportunity to behold the Christ in you by staying there, uh, remaining a faithful uh, marital partner. You may not always feel as the believer that you're accomplishing anything, but according to verse 14, you is. Take God up on it. I'm telling you, things are happening. Why? Because he says it is. 
But this is the point. If the choice of your life partner still remains before you, settle it in your mind, why not tonight? Why not settle in your mind right now, never to be wedded to someone who isn't already wedded to Christ Jesus? Settle it. Settle it. But I don't feel like it. I didn't say despise magnificent God-given feelings. I just said master them. Do what's right. These people are doing what feels good. And our world is in a pit of immorality. We've got to raise the bar, salt and light. <laughs> we cannot compromise. Feelings come and feelings go. The fact of the word of God never will pass. It applies to every people group, Jew and Gentile, in every age. And Almighty God says, do not be unequally yoked. Now listen, I want to tell you something. I'm trying to persuade you of the wrongness of it. But I'm ineffective. It occurred to me, there's a very effective means by which you can be persuaded not to marry an unbeliever, and it's this. Find a believer who already is and say, could we have coffee? Tell me what your life is like. I think you're going to hear horrific, sad and tragic stories of disarray and discord and disharmony and blatantly different perspectives about money management, church going, and child rearing. You birth children together. You're going to be torn. They're going to be torn because the perspective of the believing spouse is diametrically opposed to that of the non-believing spouse. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23 and on, it says, in those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod. Ashdod is, was one of the Philistine cities. It's on the uh, Mediterranean coast, western part of the country. You can visit Ashdod today. And Nehemiah says, in those days, I saw the Jews married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. So Ashdod on the west, Ammon and Moab to the east. If you think of the Jordan River Valley running north-south and cross the Jordan River Valley into modern-day Jordan, that's Ammon and Moab. So you have Ashdod, Philistines on the west. You have Ammonites and Moabites on the east, and the Israelites come out from among them. God said, I liberated you. I delivered you. You're a privileged and blessed people, but there's a responsibility. Be separate. No, they marry uh, men and women from Ashdod, from Ammon, and Moab. And verse 24 of Nehemiah 13 says, as for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah. I ask you a question. What is the language of Judah? It is Hebrew. Hebrew is the language of Judah. None of the children, this text says, 
produced by intermarriage between Israelites and Ashdodites, Ammonites and Moabites. None of those children spoke the language of Judah, which is Hebrew. Now, let me ask you this. In what language is the Tanakh, the Old Testament, written? Hebrew. You know what this means? If the spouse, the non-Jewish spouse, can't speak the language of Judah, that means that non-Jewish spouse can't teach his or her children the Bible because it's in Hebrew. Not only can't this one teach the child the Bible, raise the child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that unsaved spouse, that Ashdodite, that Moabite, that Ammonite, wouldn't even want to. <laughs> Why would they want to? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who needs him? Can you imagine what it's... Some of you don't have to imagine you're living it today. Offer yourself to someone on the verge of doing what you've done. Say, God's grace is going to be sufficient for you. Did you know that? We're not about hurting you, but let's, let's face facts. You probably have more passion than I could ever muster in the direction of discouraging people to do what you've done. Be a missionary to those on the verge of it. Tell them don't do it. Because the discord in the home, the fractured relationship. The conflict with regard to child-rearing. The believing spouse wants the children raised biblically. And the other one can't even speak the language of the Bible. Knows not of what it speaks. Has no affinity for it. No inclination to do it. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it. I'd like you, as we close, to look with me just to the last phrase of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. I left out this phrase on purpose because I wanted to end with it. Uh, here's the phrase, and I will welcome you. God said that. God said, don't be unequally yoked. Don't do it. Don't, 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 don't be in a partnership um, with a non-believer, a marital partner. Don't, don't, don't do this. Though this may not make sense to you, and though, though your feelings may be leading you in another direction, don't do it. And listen, listen, listen. If you do what I want you to do, here's my promise. I will welcome you. I will. Some may reject you. That person may make fun of you. By the way, if you do the right thing, God will say, my thing today, you're going to come under fire. If you do marital relationships, God will say the way I want to. You're in the minority. You look like a fanatic. You could even be brought up on charges today. Welcome to the real world. But if you go through all that, if you're willing to go through all that, if you're willing to come out from among them and be separate, the words mean holy. If you're willing to be holy as I desire for you to be holy, for I am holy, if you're willing to do that, you need something. And here it is, me. I will welcome you. You know what God is saying? More important and significant and permanent and long-lasting than a relationship you may have with your husband, a relationship you may have with your wife, is the relationship we can all have with the creator of the universe. 
I will welcome you. I will welcome you. If you say no to opportunities and relationships which are statistically the norm because I've called you to be separate, if you do that, oh, you'll feel lonely, but you'll never be alone for I will never leave you or forsake. I will welcome you. The world won't. The world hates this. The world wants to mar the reflection of my weddedness to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Satan, the God of this world, wants unholy twists, unholy matrimony, so that we can't see a clue, a cue, as to what God is willing to do in terms of being wedded to us. But God says, if you're willing to do things my way so that your marital bond, should you have one, is a reflection of my irreversible bond by grace to the church, if you're willing to do that, you'll come under fire. You'll be in the minority for crying out loud you'll lose friends and all the rest but I will welcome you this isn't about being married or being single you're not stumbling over that are you? Every believer is in a covenant bond with our heavenly husband we are called the bride of Christ you know what he says be faithful to me don't commit spiritual adultery I will You know what he says? Don't you know how much I love you? I'll tell you how much. I don't want to share you. (laughs) I don't want. What kind of a loving heavenly husband would it be who says, you could have multiple partners plus me? He says, I want you all for myself. And you know what? He says, you're going to have to just accept this. I'm not trying to see what your pain and discomfort quotient is by turning up the biblical burner to see how much you could take. He's saying, can you give me a little credit? I sort of came up with the idea of marriage. I know what the big idea of it is. I know what it's supposed to do. I'm not trying to rain on your parade, cramp your style, and impose needless pain upon you. I'm trying to protect you. And again, I keep saying this, but I mean it. I don't want to be harsh, but as a, a privileged minister in this church, I am privileged to spend a good part of my week, as are all of the ministers in, in this church. It is a privilege with many of you who are now seeking solutions to problems you have brought on yourself because you didn't do things God's way. Me too, me too. We're all the same. I'm not preaching at you. I'm just saying, how about a little honesty? Could I tell you something? There are no fixes to some of the situations you and I have gotten ourselves into. There's the grace of God. Don't misunderstand. (laughs) <laughs> we will we can never forfeit that relationship. He wraps his arms around us and says, welcome home, contingent on our repentance. Don't misunderstand. But sometimes the consequences of our sinful choices are irreversible. Sometimes I sit across a table from somebody and I'm listening to their story as they share it. And inside I'm going, oh God, I don't know what to say. There is no fix. Oh God. I don't know where to go with this. Would you be honest with me, folks? Jesus didn't come just to save us from the throes of hell. Thank him for doing that. He came to save us from the ways of this world. 
so that we could be brought forth holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so we can manifest to the world, there is a better way. Almighty God does have a better way. I, I can't tell you how many couples uh, who have married unequally, promises being made. And the, the ceremony is a beautiful one. And then I end up only seeing one spouse in church. Where's the other? Where's the other? Where's the other? You know what God says? If you do the right thing, no matter what else you may lose, you won't lose me. I will welcome you. I will welcome you. Almighty, transcendent deity who is otherwise unapproachably holy, referred to in places in the Bible as a consuming fire, says, I will welcome you. I will welcome you. Won't Jesus welcome us if we disobey? Not exactly. What does that mean? <laughs> How could he be the heavenly father he wants to be to those of us who are his redeemed children if we won't let him be father. <laughs> if we won't let him guide, direct, tell us the way to go. How could he be that heavenly, loving, embracing, caressing, caring, kind father? How could we? We rob God the opportunity to father us if we, though we be his children, act as if we're orphans. Thank you, one person. It's true. I love the gospel of grace, but I don't want to overdo it. There are irreversible consequences for doing things our way. It's called sin and not doing things our father's way. The church is filled with people now struggling with the consequences. Thank God you're here. <gasps> this is your home. Don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. But I know you more than me. You don't want people to go the same way you've gone. <laughs> Be a missionary to them. And I will welcome you. The world may forsake you. Your partner may forsake you. I will welcome you, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. I think we're at a point of decision here. What is it going to be? The ways of the Lord of life? Or what we feel is right about life? What does it mean to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Does it not mean your master? Are we not to say, nonetheless, not my will, but thy will be done? Don't you, Father, know what's best? Oh, God, our concern is really not with the world out there. It's with us in here looking awfully like the world out there. But, oh, God, if we heed your invitation, come out from among them and be separate. Not odd, not weird, not isolated, just holy. Doing things your way. 
wouldn't our evangelistic enterprise increase manifold times? Isn't the hungry, starving world out there tired of a mere declaration and yearning for a demonstration of the reality of Christ Jesus in us? Lord Jesus, you have holy ideas about holy matrimony. May your ideas be ones we embrace, live by, and do not compromise. And when all else is over and done, we so look forward to your grand words at the end of times. I welcome you. Until that day, oh God, help us to be holy as thou art holy. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.